songs in the first song. It was fantastic, wasn't it? I love the songs of Christmas. Um, it is kind of sad this year, apparently. We're not allowed to sing Baby It's Cold Outside. <laughs> they say it reinforces date rape, so certainly we don't want to be guilty of that. So it got me thinking, maybe this is just the tip of the iceberg. Maybe there's more Christmas songs that have to go. You know, I saw Mommy Kissing Santa Claus. Well, that subjects minor, minors to infidelity. The Christmas song has chestnuts roasting on an open fire. I mean, that's pollution. <laughs> Folks dressed up like Eskimos. Well, that's cultural appropriation. And Holly Jolly Christmas, it says, kiss her once for me. That's unwanted advances. <laughs> White Christmas? That's <laughs> racist. Santa Claus is coming to town. He sees you when you're sleeping? He knows when you're awake? That's just creepy. The most wonderful time of the year, everyone telling you to be of good cheer, forcing people to hide their depression. Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer is just bullying. It's beginning to look a lot like Christmas has dolls for Janice and Jen and boots and pistols, guns, mind you, for Barney and Ben. Those are forced gender-specific gifts. Frosty the Snowman, well, that's sexist. Why can't it be a snowwoman? Do you hear what I hear? Blatant disregard for the hearing impaired. Have yourself a merry little Christmas. Make the Yuletide gay. Wow. <laughs> Just wow. Jingle Bell Rock. Giddy up, jingle horse. Pick up your feet. That's animal abuse. <laughs> Mistletoe and holly. People overeating and folks stealing a kiss or two. How did this song ever see the light of day? Winter Wonderland, we have Parson Brown demanding that they get married. That's forced partnership. I'll be home for Christmas. Well, not if you're homeless. I mean, that's just insensitive. And Grandma got run over by a reindeer? Well, that's homicide. It's extremely violent. Promotes alcoholism. I mean, I think we need to be more sensitive this year. Maybe we should quit singing these songs altogether. Okay, so seriously, the world's gone a lot of cr little crazy, haven't they? I mean, all this political correctness and all this fear that some lyric or some little thing is, you know, everybody's kind of got some hypersensitivity going on, it seems like, in society. The truth of the matter is these are, these are actually signs of a culture that's predicted in the Scripture to be that of the last days. And when we say the last days, we mean the last days before the soon and ever sooner coming, second coming, of the Lord Jesus Christ in judgment. And so one thing's for sure, whenever that time is when the Lord is going to come, certainly it's getting closer, whenever He comes, He's going to come on time. And you can know that He's going to come exactly on time. He won't be one second late. As I prayed and thought about this Christmas series, I decided that the theme that we would look at for the next couple of weeks would just be this title, Just in Time for Christmas. 
I don't know if any of you have ever traveled for Christmas. If you have family in other places, sometimes you have to travel to go be with them for family. Maybe you have family visiting you. Maybe they're here with us today. Uh, Sometimes it's hard with our work schedules to be able to get there on time and different circumstances of traffic or travel delays with weather and flights and all of that sort of thing. But how great is it when the family gets to your house just in time for Christmas? I mean, it's a great feeling. Well, most certainly the Lord Jesus Christ showed up just in time for Christmas. We wouldn't have had Christmas. There would be no such thing to celebrate if he didn't come. But he came not only the fact that he came, he came at an appropriate time. I want you to think about it, and this is in your notes. Have you ever noticed that the Lord seems to always show up just in time? Have you noticed when you look through the scriptures, there's actually a lot of different places that I could have referenced for you. My mind first and foremost went to Genesis chapter 22. And this is the story where Abraham is told that he is to go and sacrifice his son Isaac up on Mount Moriah. And you know the story, he takes Isaac up on the mountain and he ties him up and he's going to be the very sacrifice and and he raises the knife and he's going to slay his very son and just in the nick of time, God the Father speaks, stops the hand of Abraham and provides the substitute of the ram with his horns caught in the thicket. God shows up just in time. Well, that happens over and over and over in the scriptures. In Daniel chapter 3, you remember the story of the three Hebrew boys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and and because they would not bow down to the idols of Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar, they're thrown into a fiery furnace. They're goners. There's no chance that they're going to possibly make it, but just in time, who shows up? In verse number 25, here's the verse. He answered and said, Lo, I see four men loose. They put three in the fire, walking in the midst of the fire, and they have no hurt. The flames didn't hurt them. And the form of the fourth, who is that? Like unto the Son of God. 1 Samuel 17, the story of David and Goliath. If ever someone needed God to show up, it was David. Have you ever noticed in... Verse number 49, as that whole story unfolds, and you know the story of David and Goliath, that ultimately he goes to fight against the giant. It says in verse 49, And David put his hand in his bag, and took thence a stone, and slang it, and smote the Philistine in his forehead, that the stone sunk into his forehead, and I want you to notice, and he fell upon his face to the earth. I mean, the laws of physics would say when you get hit in the forehead, you would fall backward, doesn't it? It's almost as though the Lord was standing behind Goliath, and when the stone hit him, he just kicked him forward. (laughs) I don't know that for sure, but it is odd, isn't it? There's a story in 2 Kings chapter 6 where the army of Syria had fully encompassed the armies of Israel, and there appeared to be no way out. And the Lord shows them that, in fact, he had arrived just in time. In verse 17, Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray thee, open his eyes, the young man that was with him who was fearful, that he may see. And the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire round about Elisha. God always shows up just in time. So much so that we can actually even see this play out into prophetic future. In Matthew chapter 24, we have the story of the Jews and what will happen to them. It hasn't happened yet in history, but it will. During this time, we refer to as the tribulation. 
and these Jewish believers are going to be wiped out and there comes a point where there's virtually no man left on the earth because of the fierce wrath of the Antichrist and it says in verses 21 and 22, For then shall be great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time, no, nor ever shall be, and except those days be shortened. There should no flesh be saved, but for the elect's sake, those days shall be shortened. In other words, Jesus Christ returns at such a time, just in time, like the Calvary coming over the hill in the old westerns, to save the day before it's too late. That's how he operates, and that ought to encourage you today, because God is faithful. And God is faithful even when we don't get months of advance warning, years of advance warning to be able to plan and prepare. What he wants is he wants us to trust him, and that's what Hebrews eleven six 6 is all about, because he requires our faith in him to be able to please him. That's what he wants. So in order to facilitate that, he often doesn't let us know exactly what's going on, but rather we'll just trust that he will faithfully show up at his appointed time. And that's one thing you can absolutely be sure of. He will always show up at his appointed time. Well, that is today's message, the appointed time. So I invite you to open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 4. The context that we have is Christmas where God made an appointment with planet Earth. Now, I don't know about you, but it really bothers me when people don't keep their appointments. Uh, my time is valuable to me. Your time is valuable to you. Uh, I don't understand why doctors seem to be the only people who seem to get away with never keeping appointments, but they seem to get away with it. I don't know. With all due respect to those in the medical profession, can I say God is nicer than doctors. He keeps every one of his appointments. He does everything that he does exactly on time. And we're going to see that today from three different specific viewpoints. So before we jump into Galatians chapter 4, I do want to pray and just ask the Lord to be preparing our hearts to hear directly from his word. Let's pray together. And Heavenly Father, I just want to praise you. I want to thank you for your faithfulness, certainly, toward us. You've been so kind and you've been so gracious and you've proven yourself over and over again. Thank you that you set and kept your appointment with planet Earth, that you came here to this Earth, beginning as a baby, but growing to the man, the Savior of the world. And you did that for our benefit. Certainly dying on that cross was not something you were looking forward to, but you did it out of love, and you did it for us. And we're certainly thankful for that. So I pray, Lord Jesus, now as we look into your word for this next time, that you will show us how your perfect timing can actually affect our lives even today as we consider these things and we consider our response to what you have to say. We pray in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So we're going to do some Bible study today, if that's okay with y'all. So I hope you're ready to do some work. You ready? All right, the first thing we're going to look at is what I'm calling the presentation of Jewish history. The presentation of Jewish history, and we're going to start in Galatians chapter number 4, verse number 1. Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, differeth nothing from a servant, though he be Lord of all, but is under tutors and governors until the time appointed of the Father. Even so we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world, but when the fullness of time was come, 
God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law. Stop there. God, at a appointed time, when the fullness of time was come, he sent forth his son. At the fullness of time. That's when Jesus showed up. Jesus showed up in the fullness of time. You could say, just in time. He showed up just in time. The fullness of time, literally, in verse number four, gets its context directly from verse number two, where it says, the time appointed of his father. At the exact time that the father appointed, that's the fullness when that came to be, that Jesus Christ then ultimately showed up. God the Father set an appointment, and that's when Jesus showed up. Jesus Christ kept his appointment with all of us. Now, in context, this really deals with Jesus' presentation to the nation of Israel and the Jews first and foremost as their Messiah. If we'll continue reading in Galatians 4 and verse number 5, it says, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. So first and foremost is to redeem them, the Jewish nation, that were under the law. That ultimately, with their receiving of their Messiah, they would then in turn take that good news and bring it to all of the rest of us Gentile nations. That we all would be able to receive the adoption of sons. And that actually did play out, not as fully as God may have intended originally, because in general, the nation of Israel rejected Jesus Christ and had him crucified. But yet still, there were the Jewish remnant that we read about in the book of Acts that did ultimately bring the gospel to the Gentile nations. So we see that that's exactly what actually did happen. He came in the fullness of time. And notice in verse number four, it says, he was made of a woman. Now that's a very specific statement and it's very important that he said it that way. It really refers to the virgin birth. It says that he was made of a woman. It does not say that he was made of a man and a woman. He was made of a woman. It also doesn't say that he was born of a woman. It says that he was made of a woman. John chapter 1 and verse 14, And the Word, the Lord Jesus Christ, right? The Word of God, the living Word, was made flesh. And dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. First Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. Notice, God was manifest or made in the flesh. Justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. He was made of a woman. And he was not born of a woman in the sense that his life began at physical birth. Because he was more than just a baby that was born into this world. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 47 says, The first man is of the earth, earthy, referring to Adam. The second man is the Lord from heaven. He was pre-existing. He had existed in eternity past. And he came to earth made of a woman. That's the virgin birth. This is what we hear about all the time at Christmas. This is the story of Christmas. The, the virgin conceives, right? And so these first advent prophecies of the coming of the Messiah, well, all of these Old Testament prophecies pointing towards the birth of the Christ child are God the Father's notification that he is setting an appointment with the earth and with men. 
And this is the, the appointment of his son. So we have several of those listed for you in Jeremiah chapter 31 and verse 22. How long wilt thou go about, O thou backsliding daughter? For the Lord hath created a new thing in the earth. A woman shall compass a man. What's he talking about? Well, ultimately he's talking about what we read about in Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14, the verse most of us are familiar with. Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. A woman shall compass a man. Isaiah chapter 9 and verse number 6, another place we're generally familiar with. For unto us a child is born. Certainly this flesh and bone baby child certainly was born. But it's more than just that. Because it goes on and it says, unto us a son is given. The child is born, but the son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And before we move on from this point, please, if you have never before, Pay attention to the wording, the name of the one who is the son who is given by miraculous virgin birth is the one who will have the ultimate government of the entire planet and even the universe upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God. He is God. Emmanuel literally means God with us. And I want you to also notice the name of the son that is given is the everlasting father. The son is the father. The father is the son. Well, that's weird. Well, it's the trinity of God. It's the, it's the very Godhead. The father, the son, and the spirit are three, yet in one. And we see that. He is God Almighty. And this birth was prophesied to take place in the little town of Bethlehem in Micah chapter 5 and Verse number two, but thou Bethlehem, Ephathra, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me, that is to be ruler, the Messiah, ruler in Israel, whose going forth have been from old, from everlasting. You see, he had no beginning. He's eternal. He's eternal. So when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, and made under the law, made under the law. And this idea of being made under the law, well, that has to do with he's made under the curse of the law. If you're in Galatians 4, you might want to turn back to Galatians 3 and notice in verse number 10. For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. And jump down to verse 13. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. So when he was made under the law, he was made under this system that brought a curse on all mankind. But it says in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus himself in his sermon said in verse 17, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I'm not come to destroy, but to fulfill. So Jesus Christ, the only one who ever completely fulfilled the law by living a perfect and sinless life, 
became a curse, dying in our place. He did not need to die because the wages of sin is death. He had no sin. He chose to die, laid down his life willingly. No man takes it from me. Laid down his life willingly, took upon him the curse that belonged to us. He was made under the law. Which is why, for example, in Luke chapter 2, the story we frequently read at Christmas time, and verse 21, it says, And when eight days were accomplished for the circumcising of the child, talking about Jesus, his name was called Jesus, which was so named of the angel before he was conceived in the womb. So even Jesus Christ, when he showed up as a baby, born through Mary's womb, he had to follow the Old Testament law of circumcision, which was to occur on the eighth day, originally given in Genesis 17:12 as a sign of the Abrahamic covenant, but repeated and instituted into the law of Moses in Leviticus chapter 12. So he was made under the law. He showed up on time for his appointment, first and foremost with the Jews, but ultimately so that he could redeem all of us from the curse of the law, from the curse of sin. Now let's look at it from another way. And this is our second point today. From the panorama of human history. So you might want to look in Genesis chapter 1. We're going to start at the very beginning. Because literally, from the very beginning of time, before there ever were Jews or Gentiles, God had informed all of humanity when Jesus Christ would come. I don't know if you know it or not, but the creation story pictures for us 7,000 years of human history. The creation story pictures for us 7,000 years of human history. So you know the story back in Genesis chapter 1. We have the six days of creation Literal 24-hour days, God did what he did, and the evening and the morning was the first day, and the evening and the morning was the second day, and the evening and the morning was the third day. And for six days, God created everything that was to be created. And on the seventh day, Genesis chapter 2 and verse number 2, God rested from all the work that he had performed in the six days. Why? Because he was tired? No, because he was setting a pattern. Because he was going to teach us something. He was going to show us something. So much so that that seventh day that God sanctified and that he blessed becomes the Sabbath that happens every single week. That all through the Old Testament the Jews were to work six days and they were to rest the seventh day. But it's much more than just setting a standard for this Sabbath of rest. And that's a principle of our lives. We should work and we should take some time to rest. By the way, most of it should be work and some of it should be rest. But God is establishing a pattern, but it's much more than that because it's actually prophetic. If you take those days of creation and that last day of rest and you compare Scripture with Scripture, which is how we study the Bible, you're going to end up at some point in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse number 8, which says, But, beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. Now, is God just saying, you know, with me, time, you know, it doesn't even matter. I mean, a, you know, a day, a thousand, a thousand a day. I mean, I'm outside of time. It kind of doesn't matter. Well, that's a very cursory view. When God speaks, he speaks very specifically. And he says what he means, and he means what he says. And 
literally what he's giving us is he's kind of given us some parameters on how to do an algebra equation. He's saying anytime you see x, x equals 1,000, where x equals a day. I mean, he's showing us this pattern. So if we use this template and we go back to the creation account, are you still in Genesis chapter 1? At the end of, Gen near in the middle anyways, near the end of Genesis chapter 1, we have in verse number 19 where he says the evening and the morning was the fourth day. Do you see that? Evening and the morning was the fourth day. So by verse 19, he finishes the fourth day. And then we have in verse number 20. And God said, let the waters bring forth abundantly the moving creature that hath life, and fowl that may fly above the earth in the open firmament of heaven. And so what we have is the initiation of this fifth day. And the thing that's so unique and so very important for the student of the Bible to understand is there is a law of Bible study. There is a rule that we follow if we understand how to study the Bible. And we refer to it as the rule or the law of first mention. Uh, when God lays out things in his scripture, what he does is he picks any particular word or subject. And the very first time that he mentions it, he, it's significant. And he sets the standard for its meaning and its usage throughout all of Scripture. If you really want to know the mind of the Lord and how he's defining his terms, you want to start your study by going back and finding the very first time that that word is ever used. Well, many of those are going to be in the book of Genesis. The very first time that you ever find the word life showing up, it's in Genesis 1.20. Isn't that interesting? Life doesn't show up are you tracking with me? Until day number five. Life doesn't show up until day number five. Now that's very significant because look, you all know that Jesus Christ is the life. Is he not? He is the life. The scriptures say it over and over again in John chapter one and verse number four. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. John chapter 5 and verse 26, For as the Father hath life in himself, so hath he given to the Son to have life in himself. He's not just saying that the Father's alive and the Son's alive too. And we're all alive and isn't it great to be alive? That's not what he's saying. They actually possess the quality of life. And if life is going to be given, it's going to be given from and through the Father and the Son. John chapter 11 and verse 25, Jesus couldn't possibly be any clearer when he's referring in the context of the story of Lazarus who died and would be given life again. And they're mourning Lazarus' death and they're not getting the fact that Jesus is capable of raising Lazarus from the dead. And it says, Jesus said unto her, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. Don't you get it? That very chapter that references for us that Jesus Christ wept over Lazarus. And people want to say that he wept because of his great love and the loss he suffered from Lazarus. Jesus Christ does not weep for the loss of somebody that he knows he's bringing back to life. He also doesn't weep for the loss of people that he knows have the life in them, the eternal life. Jesus Christ said, I am the resurrection. I am the life. Don't you understand? And the verse so many of you are familiar with, John 14 
and verse number 6. Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Now that would be an incredibly arrogant thing to say if it were not true. If it's true, it is the most kind possible thing to say. Don't kid yourself, friends. There is no other way to go to the Father, to go to heaven, to have eternal life, but by Him. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. Jesus Christ is the life. So we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 22, For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Why? Because He is the life. Now, all the way back to Genesis chapter 1 and verse number 20. The first mention of the word life appears at the initiation of day number 5. There was a man at one time in history, his name was Usher. He did a chronology running the genealogies of all the people in the Bible. All of those things that when you read the Bible you sometimes scan over so quickly somebody lived so many years and he begat a son and he lived so many years and he begat a son and etc etc and the bible's full of names it's full of dates it's full of times and those things may not be the most important thing to you as you're reading every day but let me tell you they are also recorded accurate perfect history and when he did such god is giving to us an understanding of exactly how long it took in this development of the human race, doing the backward genealogical study of the times and the lifespans of the characters of the Bible, Usher determined that when God placed Adam in the Garden of Eden, he set that date, based on the Bible's authoritative chronology, at 4004 B.C., before Christ. 4,000 years of human history, and now about 2,000 more. Man has actually only been on planet Earth for 6,000 years, no matter what your science teacher tells you. That's what the Bible says. And so since that's what the Bible says, we're going to take it as God intended, as authoritative. So Adam arrived on the scene, if Usher was right, let's just say 4,000 years before Jesus Christ shows up that means that at the end of the fourth day the birth of christ then occurs at the beginning of the fifth day do you see that so all the way back from the creation account that you read through so quickly you had the clues to show you that god was announcing his appointment with man that day five is the day that life is going to show up and it's so important that this particular appointment defines for us all of time that's why we count the date when you write a check and you put the date on the check when you do anything that you write the date you write it in reference to the coming of christ bc before christ ad that's latin for in the year of our lord now the schools want to remove Christ totally, and so they got a new system. B.C.E., before the common era, and C.E., the common era. You young folks that are still in school, and they'll tell you B.C.E. and C.E., because they want to remove Jesus out of your history. 
But it doesn't really matter because at the end of the day, that switch flipped. Oh, ironically, with the occurrence of an event. The coming of the Christ child. Let them call it whatever they want to call it. Okay, at the end of the day, all of time is judged based on this event. That's how important it really is. And it's not just that, but he kept this appointment so that he could offer that life to you and to me. That's John 3.16. That's what you'll see between the goalposts during the football games you'll be watching this afternoon. Right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. 1 John chapter 5, verse 12. He that hath the Son hath the life. Why? Because he is the life. And he that hath not the Son of God hath not the life. It's just that simple. It's just that simple. Is that interesting to you? I mean, I know it's, this isn't your grandma's Christmas sermon. I, you want to do some more Bible study? We've got some more. You ready? It's because the truth of the matter is, up until now, this study's been pretty easy. It's been pretty simple. Uh, this next one's going to require to think a little bit. Okay? So the third one. Uh, the prophecy of Gentile history. And for this one, we're going to go to Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9. And, and in Daniel chapter 9, now Daniel is a book of prophecy. There's, it's an amazing time where really Daniel deals with all of the history of the Gentile nations from the time that Israel is taken into captivity. And it ultimately spans the time that takes us all the way to the second coming of Jesus Christ and, and the kingdom of Antichrist just preceding the second coming of Jesus Christ. That's all laid out for us in the book of Daniel. It's an amazing book. And arguably the most famous of all the prophecies is in Daniel chapter 9. And what's happening is, is Daniel's seeing some things happening and he's realizing there was a prophecy that Israel would be in captivity for 70 years. And he knew when they started the captivity, and he looks at his watch, and he knows what time it is, and he knows the 70 years are about up. And he begins to pray and ask God, hey, isn't it time? Didn't you say that we should be released from our captivity? And, and he begins to pray and ask God some things. And at that time, God then dispatches the answer. And this is the answer that through the angel ultimately comes to Daniel. And Daniel gets way more than he bargained for. He gets way more info than he ever thought about. And you can take the time and read Daniel 9 and the entire prophecy for yourself. I want to focus in mainly on verses 25 and 26 as it applies to what we're talking about here today. Daniel 9, 25. Know therefore, this is the message to Daniel. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto Messiah the Prince shall be seven weeks and threescore and two weeks. The street shall be built again, and the wall, even in troublous times. And after threescore and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. Yes, Jesus will be cut off, and when he died, he didn't die for himself, right? He died for us. He'll be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince that shall come, now that's the Antichrist, the prince that shall come that will usurp his spot for a brief time. And the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end thereof shall be with a flood, and unto the end of the war desolations are determined. So this is a fragment, this is a portion of the prophecy that was given to Daniel, and he gives us a timeline. And that's what we see in the book of Daniel. 
he lays out these prophecies about the Gentile world powers. And that's why I called this the prophecy of Gentile history. And this is a very specific prophecy that God gives an exact timeline for the coming of Messiah. Now, in order to put this together, we've got to put our thinking caps on. I know it's Sunday. The first thing you need to understand is this. I put it in your notes. A week, literally, that word week means seven. That's literally what it means. A week literally means a seven. In the context, it means seven years. Okay? Seven weeks and 62 weeks. Okay? What he's talking about is seven sevens of years and 62 sevens of years. You say it's, it's literally a week of years, if you will. You say, how do you know that? Well, because God uses this system over and over again in his Bible. For example, in Genesis chapter 29. Now, in Genesis chapter 29, we have the story of Jacob, one of the patriarchs. And you know the story of Jacob, and, and he goes off to find a wife, and he, and he meets Rachel, and, and she was a sweet little girl. He wanted to marry her. He thought she was the greatest thing ever, and goes and asks permission to her uncle Laban, and Laban cuts a deal with him, and he says, listen, if you'll work for me, for seven years, I'll let you marry my daughter. And Jacob is so in love, the Bible says that that time flew by like it was just a minute. I mean, he worked those seven years, and he was looking forward to that day. He, I mean, he loved her. So he labored for Laban for seven years for the right to marry Rachel. And then on the wedding night, <laughs> something happened that to this day I don't really understand. Because when it came time, you know, at the end of the party, and, you know, they were probably, you know, having a little too much fun. At the end of the party, Jacob seemed to not really understand who was who. And Laban pulls the switcheroo. And instead of sending Rachel into Jacob's tent to consummate this marriage, he sends Rachel's older sister, Leah, into the tent. And Jacob consummates this marriage that he bargained for Rachel. He gets the older sister. And so, you know, oddly, he didn't seem to figure that out until the next morning. He wakes up the next morning, and he's like, what happened? So naturally, he goes back to Laban. And he goes back to Laban, and he's like, what up? How'd this happen? <laughs> and Laban says, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. Uh, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to do you a deal. Here's what I'm going to do. Now, you'll have to go to Genesis 29 and you know, get the literal rendering. This is my, you know, paraphrase. Genesis 29, 27 from the scriptures say exactly as he refers to Jacob, speaking of how he can ultimately marry Rachel. Fulfill, fulfill her week, and we will give thee also, this also for the service which thou shalt serve with me yet seven other years. A week is a seven. In context, it's years. So when we go back to Daniel chapter 9, and we're talking about seven weeks, we're talking about seven sevens of years, or 49 years, for example. Now we're going to go back to Daniel chapter 9. You ready? We're going to put this thing together. We're going to see God's exact timeline. I told you we're going to have some Bible study today. So it says, From the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto the presentation 
of Messiah the Prince. We'll take seven weeks and three score, which is 60, and two weeks. So seven plus 62 equals 69, right? So you have in your notes 69 times seven years is a total of 483 years. So whenever the time was that this commandment was given to go back and restore and to rebuild Jerusalem and the walls, it's going to take 483 years until Messiah the Prince ultimately is cut off in the crucifixion. So let's start to find these things in the Bible, shall we? The commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem would have occurred in the year 445 B.C. Now, this has to be during the time after Jerusalem was destroyed in the captivity and the Jews are taken captive into Babylon and then ultimately in Persia. And then when they go back to rebuild Jerusalem and the temple and the walls that's found in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. And the specific command that we're referring to is found in Nehemiah chapter 2. So follow along with me. I'm going to start Nehemiah chapter 2 and verse number 1. And it came to pass in the month Nisan, in the 20th year of Artaxerxes the king, that wine was before him. And I took up the wine and gave it unto the king. Now I had not been before time sad in his presence. Wherefore the king said unto me, Why is thy countenance sad, seeing thou art not sick? This is nothing else but sorrow of heart. Then I was very sore afraid, and said unto the king, Let the king live forever. Why should not my countenance be sad when the city, the place of my father's sepulchres, lies waste, and the gates thereof are consumed with fire? And so the king senses Nehemiah was the cupbearer, the servant to the king, and he knew Nehemiah well enough to know, hey, he's just not himself today. Something's wrong. Tell me what's up. And so he tells him what's bothering him. My people and our homeland are destroyed. So the conversation continues in verse number 7. Moreover, I said unto the king, If it please the king, let letters be given me to the governors beyond the river, that they may convey me over till I come into Judah. And a letter unto Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the palace, which appertain to the house, and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall enter into. And the king granted me according to the good hand of my God upon me. So he makes a request to the king. And the king of Persia ruled the Gentile kingdoms of that day. And he makes request of the king, can I go back with your assistance and with your material resources? With your permission, can I go back and rebuild the walls? Can I go back and rebuild the city? And specifically he said that. Now, historically, King Artaxerxes of Persia began his reign as king. I'm, I'm losing some of you. Hang in there with me, okay? We're gonna, I, I know you came here thinking that we weren't going to do math. We got a little bit here. Historically, King Artaxerxes of Persia began his reign in 465 B.C., but in Nehemiah chapter 2 and verse number 1, it says it came to pass in the month Nisan in the 20th year of Artaxerxes. So it brings it from 465 to 445. And it says in the month Nisan, and in the Jewish calendar, the month Nisan is roughly comparable to our calendar, mid-March to mid-April. That's when the month Nisan would occur. It would be in the early springtime of the year. So that's when Nehemiah was approved to go back and rebuild Jerusalem 
And it says specifically, and the wall, in verse number 8 of Nehemiah 2, which is a direct reference from what Daniel said in Daniel chapter 9 and verse 25. It says, the streets shall be built again, and the wall. So we know that this is the commandment referred to. This is what Daniel was referring to, or God was referring to in telling Daniel in Daniel 9.25. This is the commandment to restore and build Jerusalem. This is when the stopwatch starts, 445 B.C. And it's going to go unto the Messiah, the Prince, and typically is understood to be at 30 A.D. Now, the timing specifically is dealing with the event in Jesus' life, of what we call the triumphal entry. That Palm Sunday, seven days before the Passover, that day that Jesus Christ rides on the foal of a donkey, and he's entering into Jerusalem, and they throw palm branches in front of him, and they glorify and recognize him finally, for the first time publicly, he's recognized as Messiah, the Prince. That's the triumphal entry. That's not at his birth. That's not at his baptism. It's at the entrance of the city of Jerusalem declared to be who he really is. That Palm Sunday, in the eyes of some commentators, they believe that they can set that at the cash equivalent of April 2nd on our calendar, 30 A.D. We'll mention that in a second. But seven days before the Passover, and one thing that we know for sure is that the Passover in the Old Testament system always occurred on the 14th day of the month Nisan. Now, how you doing? You doing okay? We're almost done. We're, we're doing okay. That's when Jesus was publicly declared to be the Messiah. So, kids, you with me? Because you're better at math than your parents, okay? We're going to do the math. It's written down for you. 445 B.C., 30 A.D., 445 and 30 is 475. You say, eh, that doesn't work. It doesn't work. We're looking for 483. What happened to the other eight years? Okay, well, you need to, we need to dig a little further. You need to understand that years are measured differently in different systems. So you have a lunar year. And a lunar year has 354 days. That would be the cycle of a calendar based on the cycle of the moon around the earth. And how they measure that comes out to 354 days. Days. There's a calendar year, which is basically based off of 12 30-day months, so that would be 360 days. The calendar year, as we refer to it, would be a 360-day year. The solar year, now the Earth, you know, going around one time around the sun, is 365 days, you know that. But there has to be an adjustment made because we figured it out astronomically. The Julian calendar is actually 365 and one quarter days. So every four years, you add a day, February 29th. Every four years, you have, we have leap year, right? We add an extra day. And so that's how we've come to these different ways of measuring time. This is important because we don't have time to do this. You can do this on your own. I gave you the references for yourself. The way the Bible refers to the calendar, it refers to it according to the calendar year of 30-day months. 12 30-day months is the way the Lord requires or registers time, and you can see that in the account of the flood in Genesis 7 and Genesis chapter 8. I gave you that. You can look that up on your own. God will count time in that manner. 
Now, we're going to go back to the calculation. Typically, when we refer to 445 B.C. to 30 A.D., what we're doing is we're counting via a solar calendar year. And if we count all those years, we have to count those years inclusively. In other words, we have to include 445, not just start counting after 445. So inclusively, it's not actually 475, it's actually 476. Since it's 476, how you doing? You all doing okay? 476 years times, I don't have blanks here. You, just, you can just look. It's here. It's written for you. <laughs> times 365 days a year, which is the solar calendar, yields 173,740 days. We're going to back figure then into the other system. But we didn't include the leap years, so for that many years, if you count, divide by four, how many days do you need to add? You add 119 leap year days. So 173,740 becomes 173,859. When's the last time you went to church and did this? Okay. Then there's 20 more days to account for. And these last 20 days are typically accounted for from the best estimation of history, from the beginning of the month Nisan, or the reference thereof concerning Artaxerxes, until this actual triumphal entry, which some think is April 2nd. And so you're going to add 20 more days to get 173,879 days, from which, if you then divide God's calendar of 360 days per year how we doing it's exactly 483 years it's exactly 483 years now to be fair to be fair because i i am skeptical in nature as well and i know some of you are too i i can't be dogmatic about the exact day here and the exact day here so if you want to say god came exactly 483 years to the day. Uh, you can do that. There's some wiggle room. But if you know that the commandment was in Nisan, and you know that the Passover was in Nisan, it's the same time of the year. And if you want to default to the fact that God Almighty set an appointment and kept his appointment to the day, not just to the year. Well, I think you're free to be able to do that. I th is that fair? So, you know, if you want to hold my feet to the fire on how do you know it was, the, okay, well, maybe I don't know exactly the day, but I know this, it was the same time of year and it was that many years. The Bible bears that out without having to use anything else. So that's very important. We know that that is what he did. And it's not a stretch to look at it that way. Why is that so important? Well, that means that if Jesus Christ did not show up as the baby in the manger just in time. He would not have been there at that point on Palm Sunday before he was crucified. He would not have been declared Messiah the Prince exactly when he was declared Messiah the Prince to fulfill the prophecy given hundreds of years prior. It would not have happened. He did all of those things exactly on time exactly on time amen so what exactly then does that mean to me i mean great awesome a lot of math 
A lot of history, a lot of dates, a lot of numbers. What does that really mean to me? Well, here's what it means to you. It is an absolute 100% guarantee. God keeps all his appointments. He absolutely keeps every single one of his appointments, and he is never late. Approximately 2,018 years ago, Jesus Christ showed up just in time to fulfill the scripture and to accomplish his mission. But the most important thing that we all need to consider, I put in your notes, God made an appointment with you. Did you realize that? Because it says in Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 27, And as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment. Friends, you and I all have an appointment. And that appointment is with death. And death leads immediately, immediately to judgment. That is an appointment that the Lord has set. That is something that will happen not one day early, not one day late. I know that we view the premature death of loved ones as tragic as we should. But in God's mind, everything is exactly on time. And the only thing that really matters is when your appointment shows up, will you be ready? Will you be ready? Because when that appointment comes, you no longer have the freedom to think about whether you like this idea about Jesus Christ and his claims that no man comes to the Father but by me. When that appointment comes, it's finished. And you will either stand before him in the state of B.C. or A.D. Will you stand before him? God forbid your appointed time was this day. Would you stand before him before having received Jesus Christ as your Savior? Or will you stand before him after having received Jesus Christ as your Savior? Because in him is life. And there is no life without him. So if you're not sure that if God forbid this day was your appointment, and it happens to be your appointment, or whenever your appointment comes, if you are not already 100% sure in what state you are, well, you can take care of that today. This message and all these details and all these prophecies and all of this math and all of this proof is really just to get your attention that your appointed time is coming and you're anticipating that you're going to live 70, 80, 90, 100 years, but you don't know that. None of us know that. We're all just one phone call away from life being drastically different, aren't we? And the issue God wants to communicate to all of us is, I'm faithful, I will do exactly what I said I will do. What will you do with it? What will you do with his son? Now, many of you have already received him as your savior. Many of you already know that you have eternal life. Many of you are sure of that and Man, you can rejoice knowing God is faithful. You can rejoice knowing that you've already responded. You can rejoice knowing that you've already received the life, and that is fantastic. But can I encourage you that yet while life continues, that if you're anything like me, and in a sense we're all like each other, 
You get frustrated waiting, don't you? You have expectations, you have prayer requests, you have things that you want to happen, and it doesn't seem like God's coming through on your time schedule. Hey, Christian, God has his time schedule, and he wants you just to wait patiently for him. He wants you to trust in him. He wants you to exercise faith so that you can please him. Don't ever quit waiting for him. Don't get frustrated and run out on God and quit on God because he didn't come through for you the way you think he should come through for you on the time scale that you arbitrarily set. God has his schedule and he absolutely keeps 100% of his appointments. So let me encourage you with a verse that should encourage all of us. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. There hath no temptation taken you but such as is common to man. But say it with me. God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able. If you are going through it, you have been judged able to be able to handle it. But will with the temptation also make a way to escape, that you may be able to bear it. God will always come through every single day time he showed up just in time for christmas he showed up just in time for your life and he will show up just in time for every decision you have in front of you maybe not according to your time but you trust him and he will come through man if we can learn that today as we celebrate christmas we've learned something in church today amen let's go to the lord in prayer and we'll wrap this up